0: Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. We pray that uh, the Word of God will encourage you. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, we have a lot of things to cover as we're covering the whole chapter of chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, turn f- uh, to Romans chapter 4. We're going to look through the whole chapter. We're going to try to take it verse by verse and section by section and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Let me just once again remind us that we're talking about the simple gospel. One of the things that we really are praying and hoping for is that every single one of us will be able to communicate the gospel message in a very simple, succinct way that it's more than just receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, even though that is very, very important. But we want to give not the truncated or the minimized gospel, but we want to give them the full gospel, the story from Genesis all the way through Revelation. That's why as a review, as we've been talking about, there are four epics, or if you want to look at it, four um, areas or four movements in history. The first is creation, that God created all things, and He created them what? Good. He created good things, and that's what he desired, but sin entered into this world. That's why we have the fall, and that's why when you look at this world and everything that's going on, whenever there's despair or hopelessness, it's because of sin. And a lot of us, we minimize that. Oh, it's just who we are, or this is the situation. No, it's because of sin we see that relationships are marred. It's not the way it's supposed to be between a parent and a child, between a husband and wife, or even between friends. A lot of that is for our sinfulness and our self-centeredness. When you think about other areas, while whether it's school or some of us who are working, some of the injustices that you see is because of sin, and that's why the fall is something that we have to be serious about and understand that we are in that fallen nature as well. None of us are perfect. We were born into this world that is full of sin. We've been born from sinful parents. So that's why we have this thing called the depravity of man or humankind. And then from there, God so loved us that He did not want to leave us there. He had a greater plan. So that's why He sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come into this world to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, that as he died on the cross, suffered for us, died for us, resurrected from the dead, now we have redemption. Redemption, that word means ransom, to purchase back. That was, we were belonged to God, we were his, but because of sin, we turned away. But God re- ransomed us, redeemed us. He paid the price, which was through the Son's blood, Jesus Christ. That was the ransom, so now we are set free so we can live. But that's the problem many of us that's all we know about the gospel that's why from monday through saturday you live your own life as if you are your king of your little kingdom of your lives are not transforming and that's why you get very discouraged and you're wondering to yourself why is my life not transforming because all you believe is that jesus christ died on the cross and then now you're saved it's some kind of transactional thing where you trust in him and then all of a sudden you're good but no god has given us a purpose if there's anyone in this room that's living life without a purpose is because you have a truncated gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to believe that God has given us a purpose. And that's why that purpose is to make all things new with cooperating with God and using us in our gifts, our talents, our treasures, everything that we have. We're saying, God, it's all yours. It's no longer mine. I'm not going to try to build this little kingdom that I've been trying to build for so many years. But it's about you it's about your kingdom how can i bring this kingdom here on this earth that has been inaugurated it's here but not yet but you're going to one day bring it to its fullness and so once again this idea of we have the privilege of bringing restoration that's why when we reconcile it's a beautiful thing it gives us a picture of the gospel that's why when you love people who are unlovable that gives us a picture of the gospel how god loved us when we were unlovable that's why i really believe if you understand grace That word grace in the Greek, it really talks about generosity. People who experience the gospel message genuinely, not a transactional, well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but he literally transforms you within. You will be a generous person. I have to this day yet seen a self-centered person. Well, let me take that back. I have, but let me put it this way. They are more generous, not just with money, but with their whole life when they experience the gospel message. How do I know that? Well, think about the time when you've been to a retreat. Some of you haven't. You will. Okay? Deadline is coming up. You will. I believe that what happens when you go to a retreat or you have a really good life group or maybe a Sunday somehow God blessed you and spoke to you. What do you do right afterwards? You just go out and say, my life sucks. No, you will be excited. That's why when you come back from a retreat, when you're really blessed by God, you want to clean up your room. You want to clean up your your roommate's room mess too. You want to serve. You finally do the dishes. People almost had a heart attack in your roommate. They're thinking, what is going on? Because why? Because when you are touched with this gospel message that you don't receive, you don't deserve anything, but God has loved you, He has forgiven you, He has taken away the shame and the guilt, what it does to your heart is that it opens it up even much wider and you want to give. You want to give your time, you want to give your treasure, you want to give your talents so you can have other people experience it too. That's a dramatic pause because I got to slow down. I don't know why I'm going so fast, so let me slow down. <laughs> because I I know how much I have to cover, so maybe that's why I'm going really fast. But let me slow down, because I need for you to park this for a little bit. I'm not saying you're not saved. There are many of you who are saved. If you were to die tonight, you'll go to heaven. But what I'm trying to speak to some of you is, you are believers, but just this Christian life, you're wondering, is it really worth it? You're still struggling with the same sin that you've been struggling with a year from a year ago, two years ago. You don't see much change, and I I know I've been there. And there are times and waves that come. We all know that, and sometimes you really wonder: Is is this Christianity? Is this the real thing? Is this the real deal that I keep on hearing about from other people? Can it really change me? Does it can Can it really give me hope? And a future? Can it really give me life when I need it the most? And all I can say is simply this: that you don't just experience the gospel once. It's something that you have to keep on experiencing. Wouldn't it be awesome if you just ate once and then you're good for the whole week? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a food lover, I'm a foodie, so I would hate that. Just by going to church on Sunday and hearing the gospel and then you go and you're not good for the whole week. You know it. I know it. We live our lives almost dichotomized and that's where the hypocrisy comes in. And the more you experience more hypocrisy in your life, I'm going to tell you right now, your heart is going to get hearted. You're going to get apathetic. That's why you have to experience the gospel on a daily basis, even an hourly basis. When the MTR is about to close but you got in, that's God's grace. You're experiencing regularly. You don't deserve it. God loves you. He has a purpose and a plan for us to restore all things. So we remember the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the restoration. And the thing that weaves everything all together is God's plan, the story. Well, God is the one who created all things. He's the main character. And then he chose the Israelite people. We talk about the gift, God, and then the Israelite people, he chose them. Why? I don't know. Why couldn't he choose the Koreans? I don't know, because they would be distracted with all the K pop and all that other stuff. I, I have no idea why, why, why the Israelites? I don't know. God knows, but he chose them the smallest. Maybe that's just how God works. He doesn't choose like certain people that have all the Amen. but he just picks simple, ordinary people who maybe the world will discard. He chose them, and through them, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, will come. And when Jesus came, he came and he went into the temple. He opened up the scroll of Isaiah and he read that passage uh, in Isaiah. And he goes, today in your hearing that this has been fulfilled. So Jesus Christ becomes a fulfillment. And now he invites us into this kingdom as a kingdom citizen so that we can now participate in this work of restoration as we engage in the work of transformation. As he transforms us, he is transforming the world. This is the whole gospel, as best as I can summarize it in, in about a couple minutes. But well, all I'm saying is if you make Christianity all about Jesus Christ, forgiving of your sins, and then you go to heaven, I'm telling you right now, you're going to dichotomize your life, and you're going to wonder, what is my purpose in this life? You're going to be chasing after all these other worldly purposes that will not satisfy you. So as we hear this gospel message, then you're thinking, okay, why did Paul write what he did? Because he's not just talking about the substitutionary atonement where God sent his son and died for us, but there's a bigger picture. And that's why even when you look at chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 that we have covered so far, it's more than Jesus Christ coming to this world. But it's a great, grander scale of what he's doing. He talks about the Israelite people. He talks about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He talks about from the creation of the world in chapter one, that all people are without excuse, that they should know that there is a God. They're made in the image of God. And he talks about anyone who performs and tries to earn their salvation. That's not how it works because then you might as well be a Buddhist or a Hindu or some other religious person because once again, all other religion is trying to reach up to God, but Christianity is the only religion where God reached down to us. Can I get a good amen to that? That's what makes Christianity unique from all other religions. Yes, we pray. Yes, we do all this stuff. We go to services like all other religions. We do all this stuff, but the major difference, I would say, out of all the religion is that Christianity is the only religion where it says God came down to us because we cannot reach up to God in our good works. So with all that being said, we enter into chapter four of the book of Romans. And it's almost like this pinnacle of trying to explain everything that he was trying to explain. And it brings it down to this issue of faith. Hoping, trusting, believing in something that is not yet here. That is not just for the Jews, but it's for all people. That there seems to be this idea of this unity that comes through Christ. That God has intended from all of creation to bring all his people, every nation, every tongue, as we see a glimpse in Revelation chapter 7. And So we want to talk about this issue of faith and what it should produce in our action this morning. So let me just kind of take a little shift now. And kind of go into chapter four, because I kind of gave you a summary in the last four or some minutes. Let let me talk about this issue of faith. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm wondering, how many of you heard of the phrase, I can do that blindfolded? Have you you heard that phrase before? Okay, pretty much those of you who have never heard it, it's maybe an English colloquialism, but pretty much I can do that blindfolded. What that simply means, is so easy. I have done it so many times. I'm so much better than you sometimes that uh, I can do this with my eyes closed and I can still beat you. That's what it kind of means if you've ever heard of that phrase or you've never heard that phrase before, now you know. So pretty much what they're saying is that whatever it is that they could do blindfolded, they have done it over many, many years and many, many hours of practice that it just is natural. It's natural for them. So as some of you have seen before, I'm, I'm still amazed how they do it. But many of these people have a special gift, I think because they put a lot of practice. So how many of you know a lot of these activities that they do blindfold? The first one you will notice is they have a blindfolding uh, Rubik's Cube. I don't know how they do it. Maybe they have like some kind of Braille thing on it, but supposedly they just look at it, put down their blindfold, and then they just do it. That's how quick their mind is. You have to. I mean, he must have done it, or many of these guys do it like almost every single day bathroom, kitchen table, everywhere. They're just kind of like doing it, practicing it. But they do it blindfolded. To me it's just phenomenal. Here's another one if you've ever seen it. They actually play music blindfolded. And that's why you will see some artists, I don't I don't know appear or not, but anyway, you you will notice in in some artists where they don't have to look at what chord that they're playing. Cuz they they've played it so many times they know how many inches they have to move over or centimeters they have to move over. Or where that cord is. But you know those people who are just beginning. Here, here's another one. I'm still amazed how they do this. They actually paint blindfolded. So how many of you in this room know Gordon Ramsay? Okay, most of you. Okay. I should have asked all the way. How many guys don't know who he is? Oh, that sports star? No, it's not. He is a chef, a famous chef, a British chef. And he has appeared on many different TV shows, and the one that's really popular is Master Chef. And so there was this one episode where he was just—I don't—I think he was just showing off. That—that that was my opinion as I was watching this part. He was just showing off. You—you—you you, you minions, you know, you—you you nobodies, you don't know how to cut up a chicken. So he goes, "Let me do it for you." And he goes, and I'm gonna do it blindfold. So I wanna show you this clip and you gotta imagine how many hours, or should I say, how many chickens did he kill? (laughs) Did he slice up that this man is able to do it blindfold? So let's watch it together. So here we are and he, he cuts it up blindfolded. And I was thinking about how many times has he done this that he could actually do this. Now, as you're thinking through this, what is it about being in the dark or being blindfolded that in many ways, it's a reflection of life? How many of us know what's gonna happen in the future? It's as if we're a person who's visually impaired that we cannot see anything before us because no one can really predict the future. Some of you, you, you're, you're blinded to the things that are in front of you. Some things that we don't see and we don't recognize. But this is why it's so important that you understand what faith is. In fact, that's what faith is really about. You're almost like blindfolded, don't know where everything clearly is, but you have to be able to listen to the master Who's guiding you and leading you. So why is faith so important? Because the Bible tells us why it's important. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says this in the NIV. And without faith, it is what? Let's read this together. It says what? It's impossible to please God. Like if you want to be a God pleaser, then you definitely have to exhibit some faith. Because it says it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who, who earnestly seek him. So this is why, when you think about this, that everything that God is doing in your life, listen to me carefully, is trying to develop your faith. Turn to somebody next to you and say, God is developing your faith. What he's trying to do is that he's trying to help you walk, not by sight, but by faith. Because that entails trusting, that entails believing, that believes in hoping. And so when you think about what God is trying to do, he wants you to get to a point where you are trusting, not in the things of this world or people, but putting him as the most ultimate so that you will trust him, you will believe in him, and so that you can walk in faith because he's good and that he's sovereign. We have to remember that faith is not trusting in Jesus for the start of our lives. Yes, that's the part of it. you got to have faith to be a believer, to trust in what he said, to be a means of salvation. But you also need faith after that point. That's why so many people get baptized and share their testimony, but they struggle long because they think that once they have trusted in God and having faith in Jesus Christ, they're good to go. No, you're not. That's just the beginning. Your whole life is about faith. Your whole life is about how you live your life, trusting, believing, and hoping. Listen to what George MacDonald said in his writings, the poet and the pastor. He says this, uh, faith is that which knowing the Lord's will goes and does it, or not knowing it, stands and waits, content in ignorance as in knowledge, because God's wills, neither pressing into the hidden future or careless of the knowledge which opens the path of action. I thought that was a very good description. And when you think about this for a moment, that faith really what it entails is learning how to move forward if God tells you to do it but also not to move forward and do things until you see that door open because God is leading you and guiding you. Hence, the problem with many of us in this room. We are living our lives not trusting in God, but trusting in ourselves, trusting in our wisdom, trusting in our talents, trusting in our strength, trusting in so many other things. So we're not trusting, we're not having faith in God but we have faith in ourselves, we have faith in circumstances, we have faith in other people. No wonder so many of us in this room find our hearts broken again and again. Because we have trusted in things and in others more than we have trusted and we're trusting in God. So as we continue in our book study of Book of Romans, we're gonna talk about how Faith not only brings salvation, but it's this faith that we need to live for Jesus Christ. So let me give us the one thing. The one thing is simply this, that we respond to God with action when our faith drives our conviction. So when we respond to God with action, we will do it when our faith drives our conviction. You need conviction to act. And the only way we're going to be able to act We have to have this conviction, and the way we have this conviction is through faith. So let me talk about two simple things as we look into this idea of responding to God with action when our faith drives us in our conviction. The first thing is this. Our faith must be expressed by our trust. If I want to put it a different way, we express our faith by trusting in God. As we start chapter four, we'll notice that Paul was elaborating what he was saying in chapter three, verse 27 through 31. You can just quickly look at it if you have your Bibles open, which he was simply saying that people are justified by faith, not by works. So therefore, there is no boasting. You cannot be a boastful Christian. That's an oxymoronic statement. If you really understand the gospel, then you should be one of the most humblest people. Even that you get proud about. I'm the most humble. You should be humble, knowing that nothing you have is from yourself. Even when you try to live out your Christian faith, it's not because look how great I am, but because look how great God is and imperfect that I am. That's why when you meet people who understand the gospel, they are humble. Even though they're very talented, they might have a lot of awards, they might do all this stuff, it's not about them. They don't boast because salvation is not earned. It's not about performance, but it's by grace. It's a gift from God. And it's interesting that Paul then uses two important people. you got to listen to me. This this chapter is rich. In fact, I was thinking about dividing up this chapter because there's so much in here, but I just decided to talk faster. Okay, so here we go. So there are two important people for the Jewish people that Paul is going to use to make his argument. The first one is Abraham, and then the second one is David. It's interesting. The reason why he's using these two characters is he's trying to explain that righteousness comes by faith and not by works. He wants to re-emphasize that, because he just talked about in chapter three, and he closed out chapter three, and said, "We have no reason for boasting." Now he goes into chapter four, and he's talking about these two people, and let me explain why it's important that he talks about these two people. So how does the life and actions of Abraham and David show this righteousness by faith? The first thing I want to look at is the trust that Abraham had or the faith that Abraham had. Let's go ahead and read verse 1 through 3. Okay, let's read it together. This is what it says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So for the Jewish people, they all knew that Abraham was the father of their faith. It it was a basic knowledge that everyone understood. And here is Paul arguing that Abraham, and this is important, he first believed and then he was made righteous, not the other way around. Okay, I I want you to follow this with me. Paul says that Abraham first believed and then he was made righteous. He was not made righteous first and then he believed. But he believed and then he was made righteous. In fact, he strengthens his argument by quoting Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. And let's listen to what it says. And he believed the Lord and he counted and he counted it to him as righteous. So he believed, and then he was counted as righteous. Now the word counted in verse three is translated like this, reckoned, imputed, or credited. Now this is a very interesting word because this word is an accounting term. And it simply means to put into a person's account. How many of you guys have paid me? FPS and all that stuff can you imagine one day you're like oh man I don't even have enough money and all of a sudden bam and you're like how did I get a million dollars you probably don't want to share with anybody because you know because someone else might have put a wrong number and it got into yours but you know they'll catch you but think about it you wake up you check your bank account and you realize there's an extra million dollars in there that's simply what Paul is trying to use when he says count it impute it It's been credited to you. So what Paul says is that God's righteousness has been put into your account. See, the problem is so many of you are trying to put your own righteousness into your own account. What do you do? I read the Bible. I pray. I go to life group. I go to church. I gave gave on uh, Giving Tuesday, and Pastor Bolt told me it's every single day. So I kept on giving, and I gave, and here we are. We're trying to make our spiritual bank account really big by doing all these good things. Why? Because there's days when we sin and we mess up. So somehow those righteousness things kind of go away. And We're like, oh God, I got to put more in. Or what's even worse that will reveal your heart is like you have an exam coming up. You check your spiritual bank account and you're almost at a dollar. That's it. Oh, I'm gonna put some more in there, or God's not gonna help me with that exam. Or, like, why am I still single? Oh, oh, my bank account, my spiritual bank, I'm gonna put some more in there. You know how it works. Oh, job interview? Oh Lord, I quite soap every single day. <laughs> you know how it works? A big decision? See, the problem with many of us is we are trying to put our righteousness, our own righteousness into this spiritual bank account, and it is bankrupt. But the beauty of the gospel, what it says is that when you believe, then God counts or he imputes, he credits you with his righteousness that you cannot earn. It's given to you, to those who believe. Now, therefore, our right standing before God or being justified, you've heard that word before, is not something that we do for ourselves, but it is God who does it for us because we are undeserving. When he does, it, we are undeserving. Listen to the other translations of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that he quoted here and it will give us further insights. The Amplified Version says this, Then Abraham, come on now, say this, believed in or affirmed, trusted in, relied on, remained steadfast to. That's what it means to believe it. That it's not just head knowledge, but you're leaning your whole life on this, that you affirm it, you trust it, you rely on it, you remain steadfast to it. To whom? The Lord. And he counted or credited it to him as righteousness, doing right in regards to God and man. Here's another translation to help you to understand. In the New Living Translation, it says this, and Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. It's not because of what he did, because of his faith. So through the life of Abraham, we are reminded that it is by faith and not by works. So he he says, how can I explain this to these people? He goes, ah, Abraham. Because he first believed, And then he was credited as righteous, not the other way around. By being good and righteous, then he believed. No, that's not it. The second person, as I mentioned, is not only Abraham, but it's David. Everyone say David. I want to read verse 4 through 8 and help you to understand why Paul gave David as he's trying to explain. It's not by works, it's by faith and faith alone. Listen to what it says. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one whom God counts righteousness, apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, when you think about, okay, okay, I get about Abraham. Many of you who know about the story of David should try to understand, once again, it's not by works, but it's by faith. The concept of wages, everyone say wages. The wages, that word that you see in verse four indicates there's a transaction which involves an exchange of services for money or something of value. So when I work this many hours, I should get this much in my bank account or as my salary. Or my wage that I earn. So what he's simply saying is that God did not relate to us this way. Can you imagine? For every single soap that you do, you get a bonus point. You get a, you're a little bit ahead of that other guy for that girl. Can you imagine? We'll have everyone doing soap. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What if I told you, according to how much you pray, you'll get a promotion? Oh, yeah, we'll be a praying church. (laughs) That's the reality of our hearts. So what, what Paul is trying to say is that, yes, when you work, you get your wages. But he's using David as an illustration, but God doesn't work that way. He doesn't relate to us that way. God is not giving us salvation in exchange for something we do right or something that we do good. It's just the opposite. We we do everything wrong. We sin against God time and time again. But how does he treat you? If he treated us according to this exchange, he should destroy us. We will We will cut our church in half, a third, maybe a quarter, 10%, even less. Your pastor will be the first one to go. Can you imagine? Just try to imagine that for a second. If God dealt with you, the way we deal with God in many ways with this mindset of exchanging in our due wages what we try to earn, we would literally, none of us would be able to stand here. None. Because God is holy. And if we have sin, then the wages for sin, and later on we'll say it's what? It's death. Not just a physical, a spiritual death, but a physical death even. Because we're going to be separated from God. That's why it is better understood as a gift. That's, that's why Paul was alluding to this. Like every person who works, they have this due wages, but it will no longer be a gift. God doesn't relate to us that way. He does it in a way that is a gift to us. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Apostle Paul mentions this to the people of uh, Ephesus. He says in the New Living Translation, listen to what it says. And it says, God saved you. Come on. By his grace, when you what? Believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And there is no one greater to use as an example of receiving grace than David. Those of you who might not know who he is, if you look at verse 7 and 8, Paul quotes Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. And I thought it was interesting that he chose this verse in the Old Testament to quote to make his point. Because it's to remind us that David, this great king of Israel, was justified by faith and not by what he did. If you remember, he was an adulterer, he was a murderer. And if you look at his life, you realize it is messy. Even his family life, it was messy. It wasn't perfect at all. So if we're going on wages here, David will be the last person to receive God's righteousness. He sinned like crazy. He was not deserving of God's forgiveness. He was not deserving of God's grace. I was thinking about that if if God's forgiveness was dependent on God's or David's work, then David would not have been justified in light of his actions. It was interesting because as he talks, you go back to that verse in 1 1 through 2 as we just read. No, the psalm passage where David is writing this, And he's talking about how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord uh, counts no iniquity. So that word count is there again. In whose spirit there is no deceit. That is, once again, David's writing this and he says, blessed are those. Because he experienced it. But there is a verse that Paul didn't quote that I thought it was appropriate if he did. So I just read through Psalm 32, and I want to focus on verse 5. I'm going to read it from different translations so you can get the heart behind what Paul is trying to say. This is David still writing in chapter 32, and he just quoted verse 1 and 2. But look at what it says in verse 5. It says this in the New Living Translation. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me, all my guilt is gone. I'm just wondering how many of us, oftentimes that's the last thing that we do. We hide, we try to justify ourselves, we try to do more things, or we just, we, many of us, we end up just living an imposterous life where we become two-faced, we're hypocrites. So when we go to church, we go to life group, we go in front of other Christians, we look really good. But then at home and with other people, our life just is a mess. It shows you that your life is filled with works. You don't understand grace. You don't understand this idea that righteousness, his righteousness is put into your spiritual account. But you don't believe that. Because you don't believe it, you believe in yourself. You believe in doing all these good things. No wonder some of you have been a Christian for almost all your life. You've gone to church all your life, but you never fully understood this. That's why you could be a Christian for I don't know how many years and still live like a pagan. In fact, I've seen people who are pre-Christians who have lives that are better than believers. Listen to the voice translation of verse five again in Psalm 32, it says this. When I finally saw my own lies, I owned up to my sins before you. That's a key phrase. I owned up, taking ownership. You will never live by faith. You will never live with this hope in your life if you don't own up to your mistakes. You start blaming other people. You start b- blaming your circumstance. You start blaming like God. You start blaming all these other people, but you don't take responsibility for your life. You blame on traffic. You blame on your alarm clock. You blame. You just blame everybody except for taking responsibility. I should have slept earlier. I should not have responded to that email. I shouldn't. I should have just gone and put pause on the Netflix. That's ownership. And every single time I talk to people and I'm listening to some of their struggles and I'm trying to see, are they taking ownership of where they are and what they're doing and what they're not doing? And oftentimes you will not see it. And right away I'm like, this person's not going to change. I know it. I've been doing this for 20 plus some years, 30 years, and I've seen it over and over and over again. If that person does not own up and take responsibility of what they have done, they will never change. That's like whether in a marriage, in a relationship, with anyone, even friendship. If you put all the blame on them and you don't take ownership of maybe your attitude, maybe the way you responded because they didn't do something that they said they were going to do. Just when you don't own up for what you have done, then the blame is all on them and you're not going to change. And you might be part of the reason why it's like that. Some of you are thinking, I'm not like that. I'm the nicest person in the whole wide world. Listen to this then. Some of you have parents who are codependent on you. Why? Because you keep on empowering them. The reason why some of your parents do not know Jesus Christ, I'm I'm not saying this is the only reason or the reason, I'm giving food for thought. It's because you have become their functional God. Why in the world do they need God when they have you, the functional God? I've seen many parents come to know Jesus Christ when they realize their son or daughter is completely, they have gone awry. They're like, I don't know what to do. And they come and they realize they can't do this in their own power and strength. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and do something crazy. and They're they're, going to know Jesus Christ. That's not the point I'm trying to make. This is a whole different situation. But in the situation you're in, some of you constantly, you feed into their need to have you as their God for their security, for their whatever identity, whatever it may be. That's the same way with some of us when we trust in other things other than God. And then he says this, he says, and I did not try to hide my evil deeds from you. I said to myself, I'll admit all my sins to the eternal and you lifted and carried away the guilt of my sins. Now this reminds us that God forgives the sins of those who have faith and believe that God will forgive them. That's why David is used. If there's anyone who doesn't deserve forgiveness, it's David. He was an adulterer, he was a murderer, he did all these bad things. My goodness, if there's anyone who should have been exalted, it's Uriah, but he ended up dying. He was a noble man, he was was a man of integrity. But he ended up dying in David's hands because he put Uriah in the front. Of the battle where it's fiercest, so that he will die, so that the baby that Bathsheba is holding can now he can marry her and say it's it's mine. He lied; he was deceitful. If there's anyone who needed God's forgiveness, it was David. But once again, he was not forgiven by all the good things that he did; it was by faith. The Apostle Paul then closes out this section by illustrating how circumcision was a sign of a person's trust in God. I want you to read verse 9 through 12. Let's move along here. It says this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we, shall, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was, what, before he was circumcised. It's like, oh, okay. So what is he trying to say? Can you imagine if you are a Jewish listener, you're hearing this to what Paul is trying to say? It is so contrary to what they have been taught, what they knew, what they were expecting. The Jewish people had to deal with this tension. If righteousness is by faith and not about the law, especially about getting circumcised or not getting circumcised, which clearly demarcated for them that they were the people of God. I don't know about you, but if I was a Jew, I'm like, then why do I have to go through that pain? That's what I would be thinking of. Why do I have to go through that? I could have just been like, I believe, and then I'm saved, and it's credit to me as righteous. Paul addresses this by helping the listeners to realize that Abraham's faith and being declared righteous took place before the circumcision. Now, I want you to, you got to listen to me because this is, I'm going to tie this into other things that we have seen in our church. In verse 11, it says that Abraham received the ceremony of circumcision after he, what? Believed, excuse me, uh, after he believed and not before. So think about this for a second. And I'm going to put this in a a context that you can understand. Circumcision was an outward sign of their inward faith and trust in God as God's people. This is very similar to baptism. That which one comes first, you get baptized and then you're saved? Or are you saved and then you get baptized? We always teach in our church that you first believe and then you get baptized. That's why baptism by itself with no faith and trust in Jesus Christ is is no it's nothing. You're just going through a ceremony. That's why some of you have this false assurance that you're saved. Why? Cuz I got baptized. Then go to a store and buy a ring and put I'm married. No you're not. Do you see do you see the logic? Just because you got baptized doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. There are a lot of people who got baptized. I tell you a story. I remember this one guy's like pastor. Uh, it was during Baptist, baptism class. I shared this in baptism. So if you've been baptized, you heard this story before. But this person came in and passed, and he looked really sheepishly like, Pastor, I have something to share. I'm like, okay. You know, when, when people start off that way, it's not good. I have something to share and I don't know what to do. I'm like, okay, well, why don't you explain so I could kind of understand? He said, well, I don't know if I should get baptized again. I go, huh? Again? You don't need, if you got baptized, you don't need to get baptized again. Then he said, well, that's the problem. I don't know when I got baptized if I really believed. I go, huh? Then how did you get baptized? And this is when he was like looking down. He goes, my mom said, and he put his head in, my mom said, if I got baptized, then she'll buy me a car. <laughs> I'm like, good job, man. I, I, would, do, I would have, have got baptized many times. <laughs> so here's his mom thinking that if you get baptized, oh my God, my son will be saved and he won't go to hell even though he's living a, a pagan life. So I looked at this dude, I go, I, I started laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. Like, it was just funny. And he was like, oh my God, he's laughing at my pain. You know, but I, but, I, but, but I couldn't help it I was just like, okay, I go, listen. I go, if you got baptized just to get a car, but you were not a believer, bro. I'm like, bro, like get baptized. And he goes, okay. And it was that. Because once again, Getting baptized doesn't make you a Christian. There are some of you in this room where you were baptized as an infant and then you confirmed. but you didn't believe. You just did it because that was the thing to do. You just did it because your parents told you to get baptized, but you had no faith. That's why I encourage you, if that's you, I'm not saying that it necessarily nullifies it, but I would definitely say when you make a profession of faith, that ceremony and that symbol of getting baptized is you are confirming the inward faith that you now have. If you have not, I don't care if you've been baptized. We have people who have been serving and doing lots stuff and still not baptized, all right? Well, all I can say to you is get baptized and to be able to declare now I trust in Jesus Christ. No one's going to judge you. Oh my God, they were my leader and they were not baptized. Oh my God, they were all this. Oh, oh my God, don't worry about that. You're just now saying, yeah, like I thought I was okay, but I realized I'd never trusted in Jesus Christ and then got baptized. Now I am. I've been living like this for, I don't know, five years. I love Jesus and then I want to get baptized now. So what is Paul trying to say? Actually, he goes full circle and goes to Romans chapter two, verse 28, 29. This is earlier. Now this makes more sense. For no one is a Jew who is what? Merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. So, once again, what he's trying to say is look, look at Abraham. That he believed first and then he was made righteous. Not by obeying the law and then he was made righteous. He believed and then he was righteous. Look at David. He was the last person that should have received God's forgiveness. He sinned like crazy. But he repented. He owned up to his sin. And then he was forgiven. What Paul is trying to say in both of these people that you worship and you love. What he's simply saying is that they believed. And then they were forgiven and then they were made righteous. How about us? I mean, when you look at the life of Abraham and David, do you have this kind of faith and trust that they had in God? I'm wondering if some of you in this room are still trying to earn God's righteousness rather than trusting in his righteousness, that you believe, God, I'm unrighteous, but you're righteous, I need you. What do you do when you fall? Or you sin, do you try to do more stuff to make your conscience feel better? Or do you humble yourself and you own up to and you ask for forgiveness because it's not by my righteousness, but on yours Lord, forgive me. Do you turn to God or do you turn to yourself? Let me close quickly with this last point. Our faith must be expressed by our trust. And here's the second point that I want us to understand as we finish off in this chapter that our faith must be exemplified by our obedience. So it's expressed by our trust, but it is lived out and exemplified by our obedience, if you have this genuine faith. Now the Apostle Paul focuses a little bit more on Abraham. Okay, David, you sin, you're forgiven. Get Move out of the way. I want to focus on Abraham, okay? So here's Paul. He's focusing a little bit more on Abraham to help us to see that our faith is rooted in God's promise and God's grace. Everyone say God's promise and God's grace. Let's read verse 13 through 16. This is what the word of God says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The word promise is repeated three times in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 16. It's a very important word. That promise was referring back to Genesis chapter 12 and then Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. Because if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, he reaches out to Abraham. Nothing that he did, he didn't earn it. God says, I'm gonna bless you and make you into a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse, I will curse. He also alludes to this promise that God was gonna give him a son. Now, this is the part that you need to understand why it has to be exemplified by our obedience. Paul is reminding us that faith is of no value and the promise is worthless if we only receive God's promise from the law. Like we just do the law. It's by faith. You gotta believe this. But our faith, it says, is no, and the promise is void if it's based on our performance. So think about this for a moment. God giving us a promise, it is going to be null and void if you try to earn it. Listen to these other translations. I I, I like to give other translations because it gives us a little bit insight and it helps us to look at it from a different angle. So listen to what it says in the Living Bible. So if you still claim that God's blessing goes to those who are good enough, so once again, those are the ones who obey the law, if they're good enough, then you are saying that God's promises to those who have faith are what? Meaningless and faith is foolish. <laughs> Why do you need faith? It's, it's all up, up, dependent on you. Look at this other passage, the, the Passion Translation. It says this, for if keeping the law earns the inheritance, then faith is what? Robbed of its power and the promise what becomes useless. It robs of his power. That, that means that if you, ha- if you believe in God's promises, it has power to do something in your life. And I'll explain a little bit later here. Another translation says, the voice says this, if this inheritance is available only to those who keep the law, then faith is a what? Useless commodity. Come on, business majors. And the promise and the promise is? It's canceled. Whatever I promise, forget it. Nah. It doesn't work. The reason this is important is because Paul earlier argued that no one can obey the law very well. (laughs) We keep on messing up. You can't earn God's righteousness before God. In fact, it says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. The law, in fact, brings God's wrath, it says, because it shows us how we have sinned. That's why in verse 15, it says, there was no law. If there was no law, there was no transgression. Paul is not trying to say that if there was no law, then there'll be no sin. We will never sin. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that because there was a law, what it does is that it shows you how wrong you are. Do do you you understand? How many of you, okay, don't don't raise your hand because then, yeah, I'll raise my hand because this is me. Did you ever receive something in your WhatsApp group? of something called directions. And these are really, really important directions because there's actually pictures. No matter how many pictures that I see, no matter how much I try to figure it out, I'm always getting lost. And they send these long seven-page pictures. And after a while, I'm like, oh, forget it. I'm going to get lost anyway. So I just simply tell them, I'll get to that area. Can you pick me up? Yes, I am spoiled. Yes, you know, this might not be good for me to get to places. <laughs> but as I was thinking about this, I said, if we did not have direction, we would not know if we're going in the wrong way. Does that make sense? By saying, take a right here, and then I'm like, oh, that looks pretty, and I take a left. I will not get you where I need to go. So in the same way, the law is supposed to show us where we have erred. So when God says love one another and we're not loving one another, it will show us that we're sinful and that we are trying to love people on our own love and we need God's love to love them. Does that make sense? So the law is actually supposed to show us how we have fallen short so that we can humble ourselves and turn to God. Now, Paul is referencing to sin of omission and sin of commission, things that you do and things that you omit. And when you think about verse 16, Paul reiterates its faith, not by works. And this faith is based on what? God's promises and his grace. Now, he then deduces it down to obedience being exemplified when you do these two things with your faith. And this is so important. I want you to listen. I, I know it's going a little bit long, but just be patient with me for a second. The first thing, like for instance, let me ask you this: How do you know? How do you know that you have faith? How do you know that you are being obedient to God in faith? Let me put it more realistically. There are some of you who will say, "Yeah, I believe that God called me to go on exchange. I believe it. I prayed, and this is what God has told me." I go, "Really?" Well, praise God, because we're not going to tell you what to do. None of the leaders, the leaders are told, do not you're not there to run. You're not the cult leader. You're, you know, No one is. <laughs> Jesus is their leader. So you could just give them advice. You could give them perspective because you're a little bit older, possibly, and you live life a little bit longer, so you can give them a little bit of, of an advice. And all of a sudden, there's this variant of the COVID virus. Omicron. So there's a good possibility that you might not actually go on an exchange, which you said that God told you that you're going to go. In order for that to be justified, listen to me carefully. If God told you, then that door will open no matter what. That program looks like it's going to cancel. They go, nope, out of all the schools, this school that you decided you're going to go to is going to open. Then you go, they praise God, I heard from God. Or you got to humble yourself and say, you know what? I wanted to go out in exchange because I, I have FOMO. And guess what? The school is going to pay me to travel and have a good time. It's all about me. Please listen, I'm not against... And we as a church are not against people going to exchange, doing internship. I think that's great. But what I'm trying to get at is your heart. Some of you can justify and reason so many things that are sinful or not in the will of God. Not to say exchange is sinful or not in the will of God. I'm just simply saying overall in your life, in my life, we can justify and we can reason anything. And to you, the only way you're going to be able to get into that humble posture is if you can simply say, God, I realize now with this door closed that you're exposing my heart and these are the reason why deep inside I wanted to go or wanted to do this or wanted to be in this relationship or wanted to take this route or to take this job to do this. You got to be able to come to that conclusion. If you don't, then you are deceiving yourself as the Bible says. Put a hard pause there, and let's go on this side. If it really is God, then you got to wait and see God to, for God to deliver. Can I get a good amen to that? There's so many things in our lives that maybe God is calling you to do, or God is kind of prompting you to obey in, but it just seems ludicrous. It seems crazy, luda. You know, so you're just like, what is going on? How in the world? Is this going to come about? But God, you said so in your word. The difference is sometimes we make decisions based on ourselves, but sometimes here where it takes faith, you're making a decision based on the word of God. You don't need to pray. Should I kill that person? You, You don't need to pray about that. The Bible is clear. But there are a lot of things that you have to make decisions on that I believe that the word of God can guide you if you would just listen. So here are the two things. The first thing is this, where we're talking about obedience is exemplified if you have genuine faith in God. The first is we persevere in the promise. That's important. We don't just persevere. Well, I let it open up. Can I go? No. In the promise. Look at verse 17 through 19. This is what it says. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope that he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring. He did not weaken in faith that he considered his own body, which is as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I hope you got this. That old man, he was a 99? (laughs) And when he said, it's dead? (laughs) Anyway, I won't won't even go there. Okay, let's continue. (laughs) If it is only God who can give life to dead things, then also to call things into existence when it does not even exist. He's talking about what he mentioned in Genesis chapter 17. When he told, when God told Abraham and Sarah that you are going to have a child in your old age. Can you imagine 99? It says 99. <laughs> That's why it's good as dead. <laughs> your body is like 99. I don't know about you, but if I heard this from God and it's supposed to be a promise from God, I'm going to be doubting like crazy. Come on, can I get a good amen? Is it just me? Can I get a good amen? You're going to get your own building. No, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Exposing our lack of faith here. (laughs) I'll be the first one to say, man, I'm lacking that. Every day that passes, every week and every month, I'm like, no way. Every budget year, no way. You know, I'm just like, there is no way we're going to get a building. So we can make it a mission center and then be able to reach out to more people. Not only is it the promise that he made, but also I want you to think about this. If you fast forward Genesis chapter 22, you know what happened in Genesis 22? After they actually had Isaac, God told Abraham to sacrifice him on the altar. And he's believed and he went because God will somehow provide. It's amazing that he persevered in this promise because God is the one. There was no hope. And even with the impossibility of having a child, he persevered and believed in this promise. In verse 18, the phrase, in hope he believed against hope, gives us a type of faith that Abraham had in God's promise The New Living Translation says, even when there was what? No reason for hope. Abraham kept hoping and believing. Even there's no reason. Are you crazy? Stop it. Stop. You're not going to have a child, dude. Stop believing in it. The King James, the New King James says this. Who contrary to hope in hope believed. It was completely like ridiculous, but he believed. In fact, in verse 19, it says he did not weaken. Abraham did not weaken in faith. So even though he thought about his body, he goes, mm, okay, 99, which is good as dead. And even looking at Sarah, mm, barren, the womb, old. And he's like looking and he goes, mm, I don't know. But he, what? It, he still believed. He saw the facts and he decided to persevere in faith anyway, because why? Because God says so. When was the last time you read the Bible and you said, because God says so? Some of you, you, you live your Christian life as a oh man, I stink. I'm, 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 life is not, you know, like this. The very thing that God says that you are, you're denying and the very thing God says you're not, you're, you're affirming. That's why some of you here who struggle with insecurity, you struggle with all these things in your life, it just shows that you do not have faith. You don't believe in God's word that you are a child of God, that you are loved by him, that you are a prince or a princess an heir to his kingdom. Yes, amen. And like even babies believe that. That's what I'm trying to say. How much more us who are more sophisticated and older? but he persevered persevered anyway. The second thing is that he praised God in the postponements. Not only did he persevere in the promise, but he praised God in the postponements. Let me close with these verses. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In verse 20, you see that never, we see that he never wavered in God's promises. I want you to look at that word waver. It means divided. He wasn't double-minded. He wasn't like, oh, no, 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 no. He's just one way. God way. God, your way, your word, your promise. What what does it say about Abraham? What did he do? He did not waver and he gave glory to God. See, he was able to praise God in the middle. Even though the promise didn't come yet, so, so the promise was given, it didn't come yet, so in the middle, it says he was giving glory to God. That's faith. And as I said over and over again, it is not faith when you, you know God, what he told you, and you're wrestling and struggling, which is fine, but then you doubt him so much and you almost deny him, and then things work out and you go, praise God. There is no praise in that. Where God is praised is when you believe in what he said in his word and you hold on to it, you do not waver, you're not divided, you're you're single-minded, and then all of a sudden God delivers and then you say, praise God. Are you with me? God is glorified in the middle when you're able to hold on and believe what he said, not in the circumstances, not in what other people have said to you, but you believe what he said in his word. And that's why sometimes the delays and the postponements and even sometimes you're the waiting, it is the hardest thing to do. But what Paul is saying is that Abraham, what he did was he was praising God in the postponements. He was worshiping God in the waiting. And that as he was worshiping God, he renewed his heart, believed that God can do it. God will do it. That's why Ralph, Erskine said this. He says, Faith without trouble or fighting is a suspicious faith, for true faith is a fighting wrestling faith. You're going to be wrestling with God. God, I'm not sure, but you're wrestling, but you're holding on as He's really holding on to you. So, the one thing, once again, is we respond to God with action when our faith drives our conviction. It is that conviction that God is good, He is faithful that he will watch over us. He will love us. He will protect us, trusting in all his words and nothing else. And as you walk through that valley of shadow of death, that's when you're going to see that he has been with you all this time, never leaving you nor forsaking you. Can I just give us some quick things here? And as we close, first of all, watch what you pay attention to. Watch what you pay attention to. Like when you go through things, where's your faith at? Do you see Jesus? Or do you look at the circumstance? Do you see the situation around you? This is, the why, this is the reason why you waver. So watch out to what you're paying attention to. Make sure it's on Jesus and his promises. Second thing is this. Write down God's promises as you read the Bible. Man, one of the things that I try to encourage people is that when you read and do your soap, whenever there's a I will, God will, or I will, God is speaking, then write it down. That's a promise let me God is doing something he will do something and when you're able to write these things down you're going to have a whole collection of the promises of God so that when you struggle you could go back to those promises because you've written down as we're going through the whole Bible which by the way I want to encourage you we're going to start reading from the beginning all over again in January 1st so be a part of this so program that we're trying to do so that you could read the word get it inside of you so write down his promises as you read the Bible the third thing is this worship God in the waiting can i get a good amen to that as you're waiting to get married as you're waiting for that job as you're waiting for i don't know that grade as you're waiting for that promotion as you're waiting for whatever it is you're waiting for waiting for that that border to open up which by the way we better pray hard because we just found out that you got to do one week of government housing and then two weeks in a hotel and my jesus i don't know if dr steve's going to get here but we're going to believe hope against all hope get here So once again, when you think about this, worship God in the waiting. You don't know that he's not speaking. You don't have the answer. You don't know where it's going to, it seems like everything is postponed. Start worshiping, start praising God in his promises. Can I get a good amen to that? As you start worshiping and then you'll realize, God, you're more than enough and you will do it. Lastly, walk daily with God with great hope. Walk daily with God with great hope. Ah yeah. Forget the video. This is two weeks in a row. Praise God. I'll just save it. Let's stand together, shall we? We wanna close. I think it'll be more appropriate if we respond in worship. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Close your eyes. Why don't you take a deep breath? That breath that you just took is a gift from God given to you, undeserved. You're also breathing in just the presence of God, just the truth of God. Even as you're exhaling, you're exhaling the sins and the stuff that's junk that's in your heart. I I wish and I pray so so hard that we as a church will be a people of faith first of salvation that is not earned it's not by works it's not by performance but we just receive it by grace and then God accredits and deposits into our account as righteous if we can really understand this this salvation is by faith and faith alone, it will radically change the way you live your Christian life. Because if you do it because it's going to be a good thing to do or, oh, Jesus loves you and that's it, then as soon as you start going through the first trial of your life, when you go through difficult times, when you start serving and you start losing your heart, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to want to give up. When something is not meeting your need, you're going to just try to find it somewhere else. Because you're making everything about you. But when you think about this Christian faith, and it's not only by faith in the beginning, but even in the process, it's by faith. The next day is by faith. I know many of you are in exams Are you doing it by faith? Some of you are at work with all these projects, the end of the year projects, you're stressed out. Are you doing it in faith? Are you trusting? Are you believing? Are you hoping? Because how you live in the middle really will declare what kind of God you serve. Here's a thought that I want to challenge some of you with. I'm wondering if some of you are going through some tremendous things where your efforts, your wisdom, or your knowledge of things, your own personality, your decisions, it is literally all failing. And I'm going to tell you this, and it's something that I've learned the hard way many, many times and many other people can testify. Sometimes you have to go through things where you reach rock bottom for you to humble yourself and realize, God, I need you. I'm wondering if that's what God is doing in some of your lives. He's closing some of these doors for exchange, for other things. You're not finding a job. Some of you have relational problems. Some of these things are coming up because God is trying to show you, you cannot do this. You are not in control. I am. That's what God is saying to us. I am the God who's in control. I am the God who is sovereign. I am the God who is good. I am the God who's purposeful. And all he's asking us is, will you trust in my promises? And when we struggle in the waiting and all the postponements, that's where we should be worshiping and praising God. And as you do that, you're gonna see God that's so much more beautiful than you've ever imagined. A God who is much more caring and loving than you could ever imagine, and you, you could hope for it to be. That's why I want to challenge us this morning before we leave. Can we just resign? Let's surrender. Let's give up. Stop trying on your own strength, your own power. Because look at what's happening in the last several weeks and months and this past year. It's a mess. And God is trying to get your attention. You cannot do this on your own. Trust in me. Trust in my promises. That I am good. That I am for you, not against you. So what do we do, God? What can I do? I surrender. Have your way in me. Have your way in me. I'm going to just believe that you're going to work it all out. I'm not going to worry anymore. Some of you, I just feel like some of you can't even go to sleep. You stay up really late at night trying to distract yourselves with so many other things. There's no peace in your heart. There's no peace in your life. I will say this confidently. And I'll say this boldly. If you would surrender your life today, I'm wondering if tonight you will get the best rest of your life in the last several months. Surrender your life today to say God I give up I surrender to you have your way in me do whatever you need to you you know the future I don't I'm going to trust in you you know who I'm going to marry I don't know Lord I'm going to trust in you you know what doors will open up what jobs that you will give to me I don't know so I'm going to trust in you let's have this kind of faith that will move mountains, that will do great things because our God is an awesome God. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.